Surely I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. God, would you write your eternal truths on our hearts this day? Awaken our hearts and our minds, God, to see, to believe, to receive from you what you would have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever had your mind changed about something in a dramatic way? If you've lived long enough, you've probably had this experience. When you're young, maybe you think you you know everything and you say, nobody's going to change my mind about the things I believe, right? But if you live long enough, probably will have this happen. Maybe it's something that's been deeply held, maybe a, a family thing, a family value that you've held on to or something that your family has, has believed to be true. Maybe it's a cultural belief or a, a national belief. Maybe you've believed something that's been a lie or kind of a half-truth. And then you've come to a place where you've maybe understood or seen more clearly for, for different reasons, maybe because of your age, like I said, or you've, you've gathered, gathered more information about something. Maybe you were exposed to, to something that you hadn't been exposed to before. Now we have to be careful here, right? Because I'm not going in like talking about like deconstruction or anything here. That's usually the road people go down with this. But this can be a very uncomfortable feeling, right? 
a testing of, of loyalties, a testing of bonds. But if you're a Christian, this idea should not be something that is strange. Because at some level, God has changed your mind. He has changed your mind about him, about yourself, about your place in this world as his child. And you've been given a new hope and a new identity. Now maybe you grew up in a Christian home and this wasn't some big dramatic event, right? This wasn't some big dramatic turning. But maybe you had a gradual realization that the faith that you claimed from the time you were a child was, was now really becoming your own and your, your mind was starting to change. Maybe you grew up in a nominal Christian home and you had a dramatic conversion to Christ later in life. And maybe you're here today and you are not yet a Christian. Your mind has not yet been changed. You're not yet convinced that what God has revealed to us in his word, you're not convinced that that is true. Maybe you're somewhere in between all of these things that I've mentioned. Our gathering here today, this morning, is not an accident. Just as the gathering of this mixed company of Jews and Gentiles here in Acts chapter 10 was no accident. Just as he did then, the Lord has a message for all of us here today. The question is, will we believe and receive it? Whether you've been a Christian for as long as you can remember, whether you're a new convert, or whether you are not yet convinced, will we hear and believe and be changed by the truth of God's word? Not just in our thinking, not just in our minds. Will we allow God to change our hearts and our actions? Will it be a holistic head, heart, and hands transformation? Now, the Lord had a message for Cornelius and his household and his friends. That's where we ended last week in verse 33. Peter asked why he was sent for, and Cornelius tells him that he, he sent him. He was kind enough to come. He says, now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Now, if you weren't here last week, a quick recap of what we saw. This man, Cornelius, who is a Gentile, he's a centurion. He was the commander of at least 100 men, maybe up to 600. He was a part of a cohort. We're told that God heard his prayers. And in this vision that God gave him, he told him to send for Peter. At the same time, Peter is having a vision and... Peter, being a, a scrupulous Jew, has this vision of these animals being let down in the sheet, and God tells him to, to kill and to eat, and he says, Lord, I would never do such a thing. I have never touched an unclean animal, let alone killed and, and eaten one. Then there's this arrival of messengers as they're, they're journeying to Cornelius' house. They go and they get Peter. Peter comes then. Peter comes to Cornelius' house and he tells them that his arrival there uses the word unlawful, which is, is really more like the word taboo. He's saying it's, it's a taboo thing. It's kind of against custom for Jews and Gentiles to be together, to be living together, staying together, especially to be eating together. But then he says in verse 28, 
But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And Peter starts to get it. I mentioned last week, John Stott said, as much as, much as this narrative is about the conversion of Cornelius, it's that much more probably about the conversion of Peter. And Brian Vickers, he said, despite Peter's powerful preaching, signs and wonders, which we saw earlier in Acts, now Jesus challenges him to the core of his being. It has not yet occurred to Peter that following Jesus would mean a new way of looking at virtually everything he holds dear. Peter probably had a ton of questions for the Lord at this point. He probably wanted, probably wanted to take some time and go off to some quiet place and pray. He asked in verse 21 and verse 29 why he was sent for. He probably wanted to take some time and ask the Lord, Lord, why did you send me here? What are you doing? Well, have you ever been in a situation where you had to act quickly? <laughs> you had to give an answer to something where you weren't prepared, you didn't have time to think about what you were going to say? It's kind of nerve-wracking, isn't it? To be put on the spot. I don't like to be put on the spot. Um, maybe some like PTSD from an experience I had before when I was fishing with my mom and my stepdad it, somewhere in the Madison area and we, we got off the lake and there was like a camera crew, like a news, the news channel from Madison, they were doing a story and they came up and they were like, hey, do you, like, do you guys want to be interviewed? And I was like, no way, like I don't want to be on TV. I was super nervous. Uh, my stepdad ended up doing it, but just like every time I see someone being like interviewed on the spot, I'm always like, oh, like that feeling. And maybe some of you are like, oh yeah, I love that. But not me. I do not love being put on the spot. I do not love having to like, you know, think on my feet and, and come up with something to say. So I can kind of imagine Peter a little bit being like that, like, oh no, like what do I do here? Peter was an apostle, but I don't think he was immune to that. He was still human, right? He's, he's kind of put on the spot here. But he demonstrates to us here what we all can learn from, and that is simple obedience to the Lord. Peter obeys the Lord's command, and he opens his mouth to begin to speak to Cornelius and to those who are gathered in his home. So the first thing we see here in this first passage in verses uh, 34 through 43 we simply see the message of the gospel. Peter proclaims the message of the gospel. And I want us to notice something very important here. Peter's proclamation of the gospel is not just a download of bare facts. He doesn't say, here's a bunch of things that I've recited and I'm just going to download them to you. We see that in his first three words here. In verse 34, he says, Truly, I understand. Now this word, understand here, isn't about facts or information. It's not like, I understand that one plus one equals two. Or I understand that George Washington was the first president of the United States. It's a word that is also translated seizes in Mark 9.18, the boy with the unclean spirit, where the spirit seizes him and it throws him to the ground, it throws him into the fire. In John 1, 5, it says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Same word. To be seized, to be overcome is the same word 
to understand. So Peter is seized and he is overcome by this new understanding he has. The understanding that has come through his perplexing vision about the mixing of clean and unclean animals. And the realization that God was not showing him something profound about, about what types of animals to eat, but what kinds of people to associate with. In other words, who is clean and unclean? What type of people are clean and unclean? And the answer, the worldview transforming reality, was seen, again, in the second half of verse 28, if you look back there. He says, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter gets it now. He's overcome by this understanding of God as one who shows no partiality. Literally, this is, the word here is it's a noun, and we don't have a, noun, a single word in the English language that I can find, but I, I like making up words. So, God is not a favoritist. Okay, that word's not in the dictionary, but it makes sense, right? He's not a favoritist. Um, we, if we have a word, it might be respecter of persons, but that's too long to say. God is not a respecter of persons. He's not a favoritist, right? He doesn't show favoritism. We saw this in our Old Testament reading in Deuteronomy 10, didn't we? So many amazing parallels between Deuteronomy 10 and Acts 10. Moses reminds the people of Israel that they are to fear God, to walk in his ways, to love and serve him with all their hearts, and to keep his commandments, which are for their good. Notice that what God revealed to his people, Israel, here in Deuteronomy 10, this is what he desires from all people. We see that in verse 35 here in Acts 10. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Well, this is good news, right? Just be a good person. I had someone say that to me the other day. Just believe in God and be a good person. It doesn't matter what religion you are. That's not the argument that Peter is making here to Cornelius and to those gathered in his household. John Stott helpfully puts it this way. He says, the emphasis is that Cornelius' Gentile nationality was acceptable so that he had no need to become a Jew, not that his own righteousness was adequate so that he had no need to become a Christian. Let me say that again. Cornelius' Gentile nationality was acceptable so that he had no need to become a Jew, not that his own righteousness was adequate, so that he had no need to become a Christian. He goes on, for God is not indifferent of religions, but, of, but indifferent of nations. And he quotes from another commentator who asked this question regarding Cornelius. He says, if his honest pagan convictions had been sufficient, why did he seek the synagogue? Why was Cornelius seeking out these Jewish ways if his pagan ways were acceptable to God? He's trying to do something to get closer to God, right? He goes on, he says, if the synagogue had been enough, why was Peter here? His pagan ways were not enough, clearly. He's moving closer to God in practicing Judaism, but even that is not enough. That is why Peter was sent for. 
If his pagan ways were enough, or if his synagogue practice were enough, there was no need for Peter to come and preach the gospel. But there was, right? The message of scripture from Genesis to Revelation is that we are not made right with God by external ceremonies. That's going to be emphasized continually as this Jew-Gentile debate unfolds regarding circumcision. But again, going back to Deuteronomy 10, that was always the Lord's message. Moses reminded them of their special place as God's people in verse 15. He said, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. But notice what he didn't say to them. He didn't say, you've got this privileged position as God's people, so just chill. Eat, drink, be merry, live it up, and glory in your outward ceremonies. No. In the next verse, he says, verse 16, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Why? For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Do you see how this all comes full circle here in Peter's preaching? Peter and the six Jewish men who are gathered with him, they know their Old Testaments. They know those whose fathers were once sojourners. They know these accounts. It was their fathers who were once sojourners. They were foreigners in Egypt. Those who were graciously and mercifully delivered by God. They were always to love the foreigner, the Gentiles among them, because God does. They were always to have circumcised hearts and not just circumcised in the flesh. Now the groundwork is laid by Peter for the gospel message about Jesus Christ to be proclaimed now that he has made this common ground. This is the, mer- this is the most thorough sermon in Acts about the person and the work of Jesus. Notice how Peter systematically explains to them the significance of what Jesus has accomplished. Look at verse 36. The word that he sent to Israel through Jesus, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. So he preached the good news of peace to Israel. Peace, this Hebrew word, Shalom, that is so all-encompassing. It means things like health and prosperity and blessing and safety and completeness. Shalom to a Hebrew is not like a, you know, a bumper sticker on some old hippie car that just like something about world peace, right? It's this all-encompassing, all-of-life blessing and, and safety and completeness. It was something that was so desired and sought after by God's people. Isaiah prophesied of the Messiah who would be born, whose name would be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Zechariah spoke of the coming king who would speak peace to the nations and that his rule would be from sea to sea. This is Jesus. He is Lord of all. He rules from sea to sea as the Prince of Peace. And again, this message of peace was not just for Israel. Peter acknowledges that in verse 37. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. You yourselves know, you have heard this message of Jesus. The gospel had already made its way to Caesarea. Now we have to put ourselves in the shoes here of Cornelius and his relatives and friends. They've already probably risked their necks as subjects of Rome by associating with the Jews, by adopting religious practices that are not in line with their pagan neighbors. And now, after they've already done that, they're being told that there's a new sheriff in town. That what they've been practicing is sort of right, but that there's more to it. Again, Peter here is a very important bridge for them between the practices of Judaism and Jesus. Peter understands what they're going through. Peter was the perfect messenger. And notice what he doesn't do here. The same thing that he doesn't do in his earlier preaching. He doesn't say, burn it all down. He doesn't say that everything you've heard from the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. Throw it in the trash and start over. Stephen's very long speech, his sermon in chapter 7, was all about God's faithfulness to his people from Abraham to Moses to David up until the present day, pointing them to Jesus. So Peter continues to walk through the ministry of Jesus in verse 38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This, there's a great connection here that he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power and that he healed those who were oppressed by the devil. The word power comes from the word uh, dynamis, dunamis, uh, where we get our word dynamite. And the word for oppressed is, uh, has that same root word. So literally we could say, in the power of this, the Holy Spirit, he healed those who were overpowered by the devil. It's showing that Jesus is more powerful than Satan. There are echoes here also of the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in Luke chapter 4. Just after he overcame the temptations of the devil by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. He stands up in the synagogue in Nazareth and he reads from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You'll remember that many stood in awe when he 
rolled up the scroll and sat down and said that that scripture was fulfilled in their hearing and others simultaneously wanted to kill him. Jesus is the one who brings, we can see from this verse in 60, Isaiah 61, Jesus is the one who brings true shalom, true peace with God. And isn't that what the whole world is longing for? For all of the wrongs that we see around us to be made right. For the day when nation will no longer rise up against nation. For the day when there will no more be wars and rumors of wars. For true and lasting peace. True eternal shalom. Cornelius was a Roman soldier. He'd certainly seen his share of conflict. He was no stranger himself to the Jew-Gentile divide. So here is Jewish Peter proclaiming to Gentile Cornelius and company the answer to the long desired for peace among nations. And this is it. The gospel. In its most simple terms. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His appearing to his disciples after his resurrection, eating and drinking with them, and then sending them out to testify. Look at verse 42. To testify that he is the appointed, the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. This is not Jesus meek and mild, but the lion of the tribe of Judah, who John sees in his vision in Revelation 1, whose eyes are like flames of fire, and who is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. It is right for us to stand in awe of him, to fear his judgment, for our God is a consuming fire. But Peter doesn't end there. He doesn't end with judgment. He ends with hope. Look at verse 43. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter is saying here that all of the promises of Israel and by extension, the blessings to the nations through Israel, all those promises find their fulfillment in Jesus. And forgiveness of sins, the great, greatest need of all of humanity, is found in the name of Jesus alone. We must believe in him in order to receive forgiveness. It's the same message that Peter preached to the Jewish council in chapter 4. Verse 12, and he said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No forgiveness, no salvation apart from Jesus. This is a message that was hated then, and it's a message that is hated now in our age of hyper-inclusivity. Again, here's the beauty of this passage. Remember the stock quote from earlier? God is not indifferent of religions, but indifferent of nations. The 
idea that all roads or all religions lead equally to God, that is a lie from the pit of hell. The good news is that people from all nations may come freely by the grace of God to the foot of the cross of Christ. That is the beautiful truth that we see here. I also shared the quote about Cornelius earlier. If his honest pagan convictions had been sufficient, why did he seek the synagogue? And if the synagogue had been enough, why was Peter here? Peter is here clearly because the synagogue was not enough for Cornelius and company. Forgiveness of sins and peace with God could only be found in Jesus. This is a great problem in the Bible since Genesis 3. How can sinful, rebellious people be made right with God? That's really, that's, that's the whole question that the Bible is trying to answer. After the fall, how can we be made right with God? And the Lord confirms all of this, the message of the gospel, what Jesus has done, that there is forgiveness in him alone, the one who died on the cross for our sins, the one who was buried and raised again on the third day. The Lord confirms all of this in verses 44 through 48. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on these verses because Ethan's text next week will be a good recap of them. But as Peter is preaching here, the Holy Spirit falls on everyone who hears the word. And Peter's crew, the believers from among the circumcised, they are amazed because the Gentiles get the gift of the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues where they are extolling God. Notice this is purposeful. They're not just babbling for the sake of babbling. They are extolling God. Then they are baptized because they received the Holy Spirit just as Peter and company had. This is proof that God is making no distinction between ethnic Jews who believe in Jesus and Gentiles. Baptism is going to replace circumcision as the outward sign of the covenant, and the dividing wall that stood for millennia is broken down in Christ. Now there is a passage that needs to be referenced somewhere here in these three sermons between 10.1 and 11.18, and I think this is the best place to do it. If you know me, you know that Ephesians chapter 2 is my favorite chapter in the Bible. I think this also helps us to think about transitioning to the Lord's Supper. Now remember that we are here in the beginning stages of this understanding of Jew and Gentile, both being acceptable to God through faith in Christ. This isn't something that everyone just grabbed onto right away and was okay with in the beginning. We'll see next week that Peter and company, they have some explaining to do when they get back to Jerusalem. They have to give an account for what has just happened. Why were they dwelling with these Gentiles? The Jerusalem Council in chapter 15 will continue to tackle this subject. But if we fast forward a bit to Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, to Gentile believers, we will get some helpful insight into how this eventually played out. In other words, what is the theological, theological significance of the cross of Christ and how did it bring peace among and reconciliation between Jew and Gentile? 
This is, Ephesians 2 here, the apostolic teaching from which believers today must take our marching orders. If there is any hope of reconciliation between ethnicities that hate each other today, the cross of Christ is still the only hope. So I would invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, if you have the Pew Bible that is on page 976. And remember as we read this, I don't think we have any ethnic Jews here. This is good news for us as Gentiles. This is the best news that we could have as Gentiles, those who are not ethnically Jewish, how we can be acceptable to God. I'm going to be reading Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 6, and commenting a bit on the way about how these things relate to what we see here in Acts 10. I encourage you to read all of Ephesians chapter 2. We like to often read verses 1 through 10, and I think that is a phenomenal passage, talking about what God has done for us even when we were dead in our sins. Verses 1 through 3, and then we get that great but God in, in verse 4, and how we are saved by grace through faith, how God has prepared works for us. We all probably are, are very familiar with that, but we often stop there, and, and we make that a kind of an individualistic thing, right? We don't go on and, and see how this applies to all believers. So beginning in verse 11, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Notice the, even just this language here, right? This, the, the circumcised Jews called Gentiles the uncircumcised, right? The unclean. You, you, get, the, you get right here in the beginning this feeling of, of the hatred between these two groups. And remember back to Deuteronomy 10, that they were to be circumcised in heart. The circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Again, think about Cornelius in this situation. Just as we saw in verse 4, we see this great statement in verse 13. But now, this was what was true of you, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. Not a system, not a right set of beliefs, although that's important. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body 
through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do you see what he's saying here? The wall that was up, we talked about this last week, two weeks ago, right? The wall that was up between Jews and Gentiles. This imaginary wall, right? There wasn't an actual physical wall that they built and said, you can't cross this wall. Although there were walls in the temple that kept Gentiles out. But there were not actual walls that divided Jews and Gentiles. Christ broke down that dividing wall between two groups of people who were completely hostile to each other. The Jews called Gentiles dogs. There was a Jewish prayer that said, thank you God that I am not a Gentile, right? This is not some just like fun rivalry. It wasn't like Packers fans and Bears fans who could just, you know, rib each other a little bit. This was deep down hatred. And Christ himself, in his body, through the cross, through his shed blood, broke down that barrier that was humanly insurmountable. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, verse 18, if someone tells you that the Trinity is not in the Bible, take him here. Through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit, the Holy Spirit, to the Father. Our great triune God, the salvation that he brings. And again, it's not just this individual emphasis, right? He's saying those who were far off and and those who are near, the, the Gentiles were far off, the Jews were near. They both have access to Jesus, through Jesus, in the Spirit, to the Father. So then, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Again, remember the language of Deuteronomy 10 about sojourners. You were once sojourners in Egypt. Love the sojourner among you, therefore. You were Gentiles, strangers and aliens, but you are no longer. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That actual physical wall in the court of the Gentiles that kept Gentiles from going into the temple and worshiping God with the Jews. That is is no more. You are all the temple of God. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I think Acts 10, 48, after they were baptized... Cornelius and his household, they ask Peter and company to remain with them for some days. Maybe that picture there of these Jews and Gentiles dwelling together, breaking these cultural taboos, 
showing that Christ has broken down that wall. Maybe that's the first picture of what we see here in verse 22, that they are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's an amazing picture. But it's not lose sight, brothers and sisters, of what God has done to not only break down that wall, he didn't just tear it down, he rebuilt it. He rebuilt a structure in which Jews and Gentiles together grow into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He goes on in chapter 3, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, what we are seeing and begin to unfold in Acts 10, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Can you imagine Saul the one who was rounding up Christians to have them killed. This Hebrew of Hebrews. This guy who was so proud of his accomplishments in Judaism. Can you imagine this thought ever crossing his mind at that time? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That would have been utter blasphemy. And now here is Saul become Paul, changed by Jesus, preaching the reality that that dividing wall has been broken down and that we can all come freely by the grace of God through Jesus Christ as one body. Don't miss the significance of what's going on here in Acts chapter 10 and how it comes all the way down to our day. And when we look out into the world, when we see what's going on, not even just in wars in other parts of the world, we're coming into an election year, right? We're going to see more of this. Again, right? And we're not, I, don't, I mean, maybe somebody is excited for it. I'm not excited for that. But we're not hopeless in the midst of that conflict, right? We're not hopeless in the midst of the mudslinging and the hatred that we're going to be witnessing. We know that there is a message that can reconcile those who are at odds with each other. And it's not a third party or a, some fix to our system. It's Jesus. It's the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we are not without hope in this world. We are not without hope in the midst of the struggles, in the midst of the conflict that we see around us all the time. Let us cling to Christ. Let us glory in what he has done for us by making us new, by bringing us into and making us members of the household of God. Let us seek to build up that body so that the world might see and know that he is 
who he says he is. Let us pray. Lord, we are amazed at your goodness. Your goodness shown to us individually when we were dead in our sin. How you opened our eyes to see you, to embrace Christ. God, how you have broken down the barriers between Jews and Gentiles. That those from every nation, as we see here with Cornelius, those from every nation might have access to you through Christ. Father, may we be a people who when we look out and see the conflict in the world around us, when we see the lack of peace, when it feels hopeless, may we not lose hope. May we be reminded the cross of Jesus Christ, what he has done for us in shedding his blood, it is the hope for the world. May we not lose sight of all that you have done for us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.